Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Blade Runner 2049. Sebastian and I am here with Chris. Hello to strangers. And Troy. Hey. And we are back. We're back for more Blade Runner because we're doing Blade Runner 2049. It's two weeks of Blade Runner in a row. And that is because both Blade Runners were bombs. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> For some reason, in 2015 or so, they decided they wanted to make another Blade Runner, even though the first one was a disaster at the box office. Originally, it was going to be Ridley Scott directing again, but then he decided he didn't want to do it, and uh, they hired the great, I think he's Canadian, French-Canadian? French-Canadian. French-Canadian yeah. director Denis Villeneuve, who had previously done... Arrival in the science fiction genre, and he did Prisoners and a couple of other movies. Sicario, which is great. Enemy. Enemy, yeah. He's a great director, and now he's directing uh, Dune. In a, well, he's already directed it, but Dune will be coming out in a few months. So Denis is really kind of establishing himself as a visionary sci-fi director. But, you know, this was kind of a big deal because they're finally getting around to making this Blade Runner sequel that had been in the works forever. And it came out in 2017, and critics really liked it, and even actually got uh, Academy Award nominations, including uh, it won for Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, uh, who's an amazing cinematographer, and Best Visual Effects. So it got some love, certainly from the critical circle, but people didn't want to see it were you guys excited for blade runner 2049 as big blade runner fans hell yeah you know i mean a lot of the pieces seem to be coming into place i know denis basically hit a home run with arrival because everyone really liked that and it was uh, a good cool sci-fi vibe and the fact that they had gotten gosling and you know harrison ford was back i i was super pumped i thought this was gonna be really great and a worthy sequel i was totally excited about that coming out. Yeah, it was like opening week. I was there. I had been anticipating this and reading about it coming. I had I loved Sicario 
and Arrival. I, I loved how he treated the the source material for Arrival. Yeah, I was I was really excited about Blade Runner, and when I went to see it, definitely definitely delivered. Yeah, I was very excited for it, too. I had seen Arrival and really liked it. You know, obviously, I'm a big Blade Runner fan, so I went to the theater. Jen and I saw it together. I think we saw it in an IMAX or something. And uh, I remember being pretty blown away for the most part. My feelings may have kind of tempered a little bit, but my initial reaction was quite positive. And I was sort of bummed out that they didn't really hit a home run at the box office with this because I was thinking maybe there'd be more Blade Runner in our future. So we're going to kind of break a little bit from our standard formula. I'm trying to get away from doing uh, laborious scene-by-scene descriptions because I think some people kind of get bored with that, and I certainly get bored of listening to myself (laughs) while I'm editing. (laughs) I have had people say they really like that we go through the whole movie, though, so I'm going to try to keep the spirit of that, but we're going to kind of just talk about things in kind of sections, you know, stay within a certain part of the movie. Okay. So we start off uh, with some text and it sort of explains to us that we've sort of moved beyond the world of the original Blade Runner. We're in 2049. All the uh, Nexus 6 replicants are gone and now they have these new replicants and the Tyrell Corporation has gone out of business and now we have the Wallace Corporation, which has sort of taken over where they left off. And we begin our story with our hero uh, who is a Blade Runner and we know he's a replicant right up front you know pretty much right away we learn this it's within the first few minutes and his name is K it's short for the serial number KD6-3.7 and he is played by the baby goose Ryan Gosling who I think is a great choice for a lead in a Blade Runner movie. He seems like the right kind of vibe to come in and take over for the Deckard sort of archetype. Yeah, you could tell they wanted him from the beginning in all the artwork. I think they, you know, they were putting Ryan Gosling in there even before he was signed on. And there there was no other choice. It was just him. He was first choice. And apparently Harrison Ford was also first choice. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no, no, Harrison Ford wanted Ryan Gosling. He's like, I want that guy to fill my shoes. So, How do you guys feel about his performance overall in the movie? It's great. I think he's got those perfect sort of puppy dog eyes where something is going on behind them, behind that cold exterior. It's like, it's what kind of what he did in Drive where he's cold because he's supposed to be constant K, but you can just feel the passion and the angst behind him, especially in that moment where he relives his, his memory uh, for the dream maker or the memory maker. You know, I think his, his performance right there is, is stellar. It's, it's Oscar worthy in my opinion. I think he's perfect for it. Definitely. I can see why they, they wanted him and where his performances uh, don't quite work in other films. They work here, like for, for the same reasons, like maybe being too cold or, impersonal or, or immature he like he's got this weird immaturity yeah and yet sort of he's like slightly removed it's all of it is is works perfectly like fits perfectly in this movie and his coat game is awesome i mean like <laughs> the costume no one can rock that coat like yeah. he can man you're like the coat is a character in itself so awesome he looks really great in this movie i just love his look and yeah like you're saying the coat just really works And uh, he looks great, kind of bloodied up, sort of like Harrison Ford. Like, they both have that kind of thing we were talking about last episode where it's like, he looks good with his ass kicked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And speaking of getting his ass kicked, the opening scene, he flies out to this protein farm, and the protein farm is being farmed by a replicant himself, a Nexus 8 replicant named Sapper Morton, played by the great Dave Bautista. I love when we see him first farming the bugs, and he's wearing that crazy, like, helmet mask. Yeah, it looks like cool. a really Star Warsy helmet mask. It kind of looks like the thing totally Le- Leia Wars, yeah. wears as Bosch or whatever in the uh, in Return of the Jedi. But he confronts Sapper, and they have this really kind of, like, tense but quiet scene where basically Kay is telling him, I know you're a replicant, and I'm going to take you in, but we can, you know, do this the easy way or the hard way. I'm sort of paraphrasing there. And they get into a big knockdown drag out fight, which definitely sort of has echoes of the original Blade Runner, just the sort of room that they're in. Yeah, the whole scene is from their from the original prologue. Yeah, it was originally boarded as a as a scene from the original Blade Runner. Yeah, apparently Ridley Scott just had one image. He was like, uh, you know, a soup pot boiling. And then David Peoples went, oh, I, I know exactly what to do. And then he went home and wrote like 10 pages just based on that one image for their prologue. And they everyone loved it so much, but for some reason it never got filmed. And so I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's a really great tribute to be like, look, we're going to take that awesome scene that was written for the first movie. Open up the sequel with it, yeah. And apparently the, you know, the line, I was careful not to drag in any dirt was kind of like the filmmakers philosophy with the whole movie they were like we want to be really respectful we want to like not drag our feet over the original Blade Runner we're going to be very careful to to you know make a good sequel here and just to point out with the font of the credit opening I feel like it's representative of how far we've come even with resolution you know what I mean because the font (laughs) is tiny it's so tiny it's just like look we've all got these great screens if you're seeing this in IMAX you're going to read it like this tiny little and the bass is even deeper I remember seeing it in IMAX and being like this is the deepest bass I've ever heard with that big boom, 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 you know? And I'm like, I feel yeah, like yeah. my home system can't even handle it. And so it's it's interesting to say like, look, we're doing this again. So the technology's advanced so much more that, you know, we're going to push it to where, you know, you think it, it, it would be. That font carries through, through the whole thing. It's all on their interfaces. Oh, it does? Oh, okay. It, yeah, it's like it's like the font for the movie. It's um when he, every time he's looking through the records and stuff, it's that same. What is the name of the font? I have no idea. Oh, come on, Troy. You can't bring that up and then say it's, you don't know what it is. <laughs> the Blade Runner font. <laughs> and the old age makeup on Dave Bautista is, is pretty awesome, too. I feel like you don't even really notice it at first. And you're like, wait a minute, is Dave Bautista like 50? And but... It, He's not, yeah. You can't get a better physical presence than Dave Bautista as no. your big, scary, but sympathetic replicant. Mm-hmm. They fight, and uh, Kay retires him with a shot from his gun. And the main thing that we sort of learn here is uh, Kay has his drone going around taking pictures of the farm and the area, and the drone can sort of do uh, scans of the earth, and they find a box under the ground, which turns out to be an ossuary, which is a box full of bones. That becomes the first clue that sets us off on our sort of detective story. Now, it's funny because last time we talked in Blade Runner about how David Peoples had to be brought in to sort of add more detective elements to it. I feel like this movie definitely has plenty of detective work in yeah. it. 
Kay does a lot of detecting. Yeah, it's great. This is a mystery. The whole thing mm -hmm. is a is a mystery, unlike Blade Runner, where he's just trying to hunt down people. There are definitely clues, and the audience has no idea what's going on, and, and you get little bits of information. So, yeah, definitely works more as a detective story. Yes. Absolutely. And then it's a personal mystery to the main lead, you know, so I feel like I was super invested in it, and... and you know, watching it the second time, you know, because you know how it, how everything plays out, um, it's not quite as impactful. But I was fully on board for this ride, you know, and, and I, I was on board with Kay or Joe whenever he would, you know, rise and fall. And, and I really felt it. Now, what did you guys feel of the production design and the special effects and everything? Obviously, Denis is really trying to call back to the original Blade Runner, but I feel like he's also trying to sort of move things forward visually, both in a time sense and a visual sense. I know you both are super fans of Blade Runner, as I am. Do you feel like this film captured the vibe? Yes, I think it was a good update. You know, I think that they couldn't have just done the same thing. You know, they were, they updated it. I do miss a little bit of the tactileness of the 1982 special effects. I know they made a lot of models and they tried to be old school with a lot of the things, but especially the cityscapes. I mean, they're, they're cool ideas, but I think even Doug Douglas Trumbull said, he goes, they put way too much gray and smoke and smog. Yeah. You couldn't even see it. <laughs> and I'm like, there is a lot of work that just kind of got lost. And But I appreciate Denis, you know, replacing snow for rain because he's Canadian and, and you know, that they did bring it somewhere else. It's not just a repeat. You know, their intentions were were good and for the most part it works, but it, nothing can compare to the original. That first scene where he's flying back to Los Angeles from the farm, I think when I, I watched a version of it that was in HD and, and you can't see any of the landscape, it's just gray. Until you watch it in, in 4K, you start seeing the lines of the building. So I get that and it's very smoky, it's very hazy, but I totally get what they're trying to do with that. I mean, the, the whole story they're trying to tell is like, you know, this is so much further down the climate catastrophe and it's people are just living in utter pollution now. That's just a, as much part of the design as anything else. And as far as bringing back the original Blade Runner design and then reimagining it and, and adding to it, uh, I think it's amazing like i think the every detail on it i've seen this probably four times now and i'm always picking up more little things here and there it's one of those movies that like blade runner you can just watch kind of for the rest of your life and and just keep seeing little little details in there in the costumes and the buildings and and they did use a lot of miniature sets in this which i really love there's a little bit where he's flying into las vegas where it feels a little bit too much like miniatures. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. But I'm a I'm a huge fan of miniatures. Like I anytime I see miniatures used in a film, I'm just like, you know, I'll forgive any flaws because that's kind of the point. Like you the the whole point is to be something that looks like it's set in the real world. And apparently they even did bring back Sid Mead for the the Las Vegas design. If I wasn't directly comparing it to Blade Runner and the feelings that I felt when I first saw the Blade Runner cityscapes and stuff, I would think this was totally incredible. And I definitely got some of that feeling initially seeing it in IMAX, but definitely re-watching it now at home a lot of that cityscape stuff just doesn't have the oomph and the power mm -hmm. that I think that the 
original still has. Absolutely. And, and I also feel like that's just because we've seen so many of these type of things over right. the past 30 odd years. You know, we've seen Blade Runner referenced so many times in, a, in other movies. I mean, that very year we got Ghost in the Shell, which also is referencing Blade yeah. Runner. So it just isn't as special, you know, mm -hmm. and so I feel like I'm kind of unfortunately dinging the movie for that, for not being able to give me that feeling of awe. But I definitely appreciate that it's not just trying to do Blade Runner greatest hits, you know, there, right. there are new new ideas and stuff in here. I know you're not in L.A. anymore, but I don't think they mentioned it in in the actual movie, but in the like the art of Blade Runner book. That wall, that seawall is called the Sepulveda Seawall. So it's basically along Sepulveda Boulevard, they had to build the seawall to keep L.A. from sinking under the ocean. I was wondering where that was supposed to be. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I was wondering about that, too, because when they're at the end, when they're flying to the LAX airport, if it is, mm. it's to, they didn't say LAX, they but didn't. they said the airport, but... They're flying basically into the ocean, so I was I was wondering like how much of the um, the sea level has encroached on the city. That seawall is kind of my favorite city design element, at least for Los Angeles. I really love that idea, and I really love the way it looks, and I really love the way it plays into the story. I think it would be cool if LA had a giant seawall. <laughs> that would be amazing. One day we can hope. Keep wishing for that. <laughs> so the next kind of major thing that happens is we learn what the sort of central mystery of this movie is. Kay brings the box back to the police headquarters and we get this thing that what the baseline test, which yeah. is this really strange test that he's got to go through where he's got to like repeat these phrases. And at the end of the phrase, he has to either say, uh, cells or what's the other thing he has to say interlinked 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 within cells interlinked yeah and it sort of harkens back a little bit to the Voigt comp test it's not exactly the same but I feel like it's a similar kind of idea where it's like okay we need to like reset the replicants emotional levels right. to whatever kind of more intense though because yeah. the Voigt comp is is sort of these you know, it's triggering emotions. Yeah. And in this one, it's super direct because it's like, how do you feel about holding your own child? It's asking these questions for things that replicants can't have. It feels like that that one spoken word track on OK Computer where it's like, are you a pig on antibiotics sitting in a cage, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's got that same sort of cold, you know, THX dystopian feel and apparently it, I think it's a perfect the baseline test is kind of a perfect answer to the Voight comp test and I, I actually think you know pilots should should totally take this test before <laughs> yeah before flying us somewhere but apparently um Ryan Gosling in sort of like a parallel with Rucker Howard brought in a lot of the of the dialogue and, and the stuff of to this baseline test and he just pulled mm. it from the uh, Nabokov book Pale Fire which is in his apartment. That's it's like the book that um, Joy pulls. Yeah, and he's like, "You hate that book." Exactly. So the within cells interlinked is like a, is totally all written in that book, and he he apparently did a super extended baseline test that went on for minutes and minutes, and the production crew was like, "Oh my!" They think they broke out into applause, and they all thought they were witnessing something special. I think eventually they cut it down <laughs> to something that was more reasonable, but he kind of brought it on that one in much the same way that Rudker did with his uh, end speech. 
whoever did the voice for the interviewer too was was really great. Yeah, it's really direct and like. So Kay brings the ossuary to his superior, Lieutenant Joshi, who's played or Joshi, who's played by the great Robin Wright. And um, they do this testing on the uh, remnants that are found in this box. And one of the morgue attendants or whatever is that guy, David Dalmachian, Machian or whatever, who is, uh, he's in Suicide Squad and he's going to be one of the Harkonnens in Dune. Oh, nice. Yeah, he will later be killed by the character of Love. Poor Coco. Yeah, Coco. (laughs) The names in this movie are odd. Like we get love, <laughs> Coco, joy. I kind of love it. I kind of, well, I don't know about love, but I love Coco. I wish Avon Barksdale had a bigger role in this. I think he's, he's got some good Blade Runner game and I would, I would watch another sort of side uh, sequel with him. Yeah. You think he's going to be kind of his partner or something, but he's just sort yeah. of in the background of that scene. What they learn here is the kind of big central mystery of the movie, and that is the remnants are bones from a replicant woman who has had a cesarean, which means that she has had a natural birth somehow. That's the big, like, bomb at the center of this movie that replicants can now apparently reproduce. The villain is played by uh, Jared Leto, and it is the character of uh, Wallace, the owner of this corporation. He wants to be able to make millions and millions of replicants to work off-world because off-world work is where all the money is made. He's frustrated because he can't get the amount of workforce that he wants. He can't just make them. It just You can't manufacture them quickly enough. But if they could actually reproduce then there could be so many more replicants to go do this work. He kind of wants to take over the universe. Basically, basically. yes. He wants to colonize the universe. But this is like right at this moment in, in this film when they make this discovery, this is where what I think is, is the greatest strength about this story is that you now have, um, after you've sort of introduced your main characters and you have this triangle now where you have these three characters that all want different things from this event, which is great. It's just like a, it's a great way to tell a story and you can sympathize kind of with all of them in a way. You know, Robin Wright a little less uh, because she's sort of the privileged one. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of trying to keep things, the, she's basically keeping the replicants down in their caste system. The status quo. She's maintaining the status quo. But you're right. This uh, this idea really does, you know, elevate it. And it, it gives the movie a reason to exist, as some, you know, people would say. And it's not just, you know, Blade Runner rehash where, we're, you know, we're going to take this concept and say, what if a replicant could have children? And what if the main protagonist was definitely a replicant, like you were saying, Sebastian? I love that they're like, all right, let's lean into it then. In this one, let's say he's a replicant from the beginning, and then let's explore his inner life and how, you know, he goes about feeling things in this crazy, brave new world. And I think that conceit is is really awesome. And I hand it to Hampton Fancher. That premise really carries the movie as far as it can go. And and I know that Hampton was like, I don't know how to end it. Or, <laughs> and and I think you, you see why, you know, that yeah. somebody else, it's kind of like uh, Mozart's Requiem where you can totally tell some, the other student took over at the end. And it's like a masterpiece over here. And then once you get to that third act, I'm like, what? This is 
becoming like a lame Star Wars movie and, and it kind of loses me. But but this part, I love, I love. To your point about Kay's inner world, we get a sort of series of scenes where he goes home to his crappy apartment that's like this studio apartment and even his neighbors know he's a replicant and write like skin job on his door yeah. and everything. Fuck off, Skinner. And he goes into his apartment and we are introduced to Joy, his holographic AI girlfriend, who is played by the stunningly beautiful Anna de Armas. You know, we're sort of getting this glimpse into their life. She comes out and she's dressed like a housewife, making dinner, even though his dinner's really just these kind of gross-looking noodles, but she's made this holographic dinner that she puts over it. And, you know, at first we think, oh, she's just this kind of hologram, but then you start to realize, no, she's actually got like a personality and she reacts to things that he says and she has her own sort of thoughts and feelings. How do you guys feel about this character of Joy? I love Joy. I mean, this is another you know element of the story that really takes it to the next level for me. I love the sort of, you know, there's the social structure of, you know, humans are on top, replicants are a tier below, and then now he's got this, holographic, you know, virtual assistant that's a tier below him that he's got to, you know, try and find some solace in. And I, I love that he comes in early and she's not fully loaded yet. And so it, she, she had like the voice picks up while like whatever the image is like being loaded because like, oh, you came home early. Uh, and then she's like trying to like bullshit him. And if anybody's ever spoken to Siri or Alexa or whatever, they tried to put some of that in her dialogue purposefully where she'll be like, did you know that this song was, was number yes. one on the charts in 1931? And it totally sounds like a digital assistant that we, you know, live in, in our world now. And they got her image, right? I feel like her op opacity is, they didn't just pull the opacity, you know, in Avid to 50%. They actually studied how light would react to her. And it's kind of like the perfect look to her. There was like kind of a complicated way they shot that where they, mm -hmm. they shot a plate of her, and then they they sort of mapped on a, a 3D back image of her, so you can you can see through her, and then still see like some of the shell yeah, yeah. of her, the back of her skull and stuff. So they they added in some CG work to to enhance that. It's really subtle. And at this point in the film is when for me this is where I was totally invested. I mean, yeah, she's great. She's this be beautiful, stunning character. But once I realized like, oh, so our main character is an artificial human and then his love interest is artificial intelligence like mm -hmm. this is amazing like the humans yeah. are kind of pushed into the background and our story is now about artificial intelligence being the main characters now yeah. we're in we're past the world of human beings and which is why it's kind of a threat to the robin wright character well and i really love the way they use the joy character throughout the movie at the end of this initial scene where she's introduced he's like i've got a present for you and the present that he got for her is this sort of stick that can keep her program or personality or whatever in this stick and now she can be portable because otherwise she's sort of tethered to this device that's on his ceiling yeah and so then that element gets introduced and he takes her up onto the roof and she can experience rain and she can start to see the world and stuff like that that adds a really interesting layer to her character then later when he sort of starts to suspect things about himself she becomes this 
person of support who's like, I always knew you were mm -hmm. special and all of this stuff. So she becomes this really important emotional force for him. Later, there's this amazing scene where he's sort of come into contact with these replicant prostitutes. And there's this one prostitute played by Mackenzie Davis, who's clearly evoking the Pris character. Pris, yeah, she's so perfect. Yeah, she's a really good sort of analog for Pris. A totally different character, but she's got the same sort of hair. She's got a very... Uh, Daryl Hannah-ish sort of bone structure and stuff. Mm -hmm. And she has a kind of flirty relationship with Ryan Gosling. We'll find out there's a real reason for that later. But she gets called to their apartment because Joy wants to, to f have physical contact with Kay. And so they have this sort of amazing scene where she sinks with Mariette, with Mackenzie Davis, and they're sort of overlapped over each other. It's a pretty awesome scene. I think it's kind of one of the show-stopping scenes. It's one of the most talked-about scenes, for sure. They did do the similar thing in Her, which was yeah. before this, so I have to give props to that movie as well. But, yeah, the, the way, you know, they put each other on top of each other and then become like a sort of third woman and the way the, the synth washes over. And it's just, it's a really great scene. And about the joy character, they were saying that obviously when you see her billboard later and she's just like this sexy nympho. Yeah. Right. You know, so that's, that scene is so devastating. It's so sad. It is. And that is supposedly the, the default, you know, personality for joy. And it's right. really reflective of Kay that he was like, no, let's make her sweet. Let's make her turn off yeah. the sluttiness. And he dialed her, her personality in on purpose. You, you understand that innately, but I think it's really cool. It's reflective of his personality that he made joy, this sweet girl that he, he can actually have a relationship with that rooftop uh, rain scene is pretty much my favorite scene in the whole movie. I f I just really? think that yeah that the vibe of that whole scene that to me really nailed it because it felt like such a realistic futuristic rooftop cityscape scene in the rain and I love the way her hand has to adjust to the raindrops because she's never emanated on the roof before and. I just, I think it's a cool romantic scene, but then it's so tragically romantic because they can't actually touch. And when she gets stopped by the voicemail, it's so funny and tragic at yeah, the same time. Yeah, that's so heartbreaking. It's, uh, yeah, it's <laughs> such a great scene. Like like that, to me, whenever I'm like, oh, let me put on a scene from Blade Runner 2049, I'm like, this is the first scene that I watch. Yeah, I love when the voicemail stops her because the, there's these parts of her character that's just, you know, they'll have these emotional moments and then and then there's these interruptions that remind you that she's not real, that she's imaginary, that all of this is like his projection. I do have a nitpick to make about the later scene where Joy uh, brings over Mariette. And that is, how did Joy get in touch with Mariette? I was assuming that you could just like call. This is because Mariette's a, sets, a sex worker. Right. So yeah. she's got some kind of phone number or something. Yeah, you could, you could just go online and order her. She said, you know where to find me. And so, you know, and she was listening that whole time. Right, right. You know, she's listening to what's going on. So I, I assume that she has the autonomy to like make a call, I guess. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I, 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 get, I went there. I, I put that together, but I'm like, 
just picturing her making a phone call or something <laughs> it was a little weird. Hey, man, I've had my Google Assistant make reservations for me over the phone. It's like we're living in a new world, man. It's crazy. Yeah, but was it doing it on its own accord? Not <laughs> Did yet. Did it just listen to you and then they go, I'm going to go make <laughs> reservations for Chris? Not yet. I told it to do it. Yeah. Chris, it's your anniversary, I see. I went ahead and made you a reservation with a sex worker. <laughs> that would be great. I'll be like, hey, Autumn, it was the it was Siri. It was Siri. It wasn't me. Like, when Joy dies, when love steps on her emanator, that's just a heartbreaking moment for me in so many ways. And you know, just the fact that he's losing her forever and like whether it wasn't real or not. Oh, and to rub salt into the yeah, wound. And then he, like, and he has that iconic shot where he sees another basic like she's a pro. Yeah, just how that all works out is is fabulous. Uh, Kay goes to investigate this new form of replicant, and the place that he goes first is, of course, the Wallace Corporation. He goes in and he meets with Wallace's uh, main assistant, Love, L-U-V, another weird name here. And this character is played by this Danish actress, I believe, or she might be Swedish, Sylvia Hoax. Yeah, she's Danish. She's Danish because she wanted to do a really good job after Rudker. She was like, I really felt like I needed to live up to what Rudker did right. uh, in the in the first one. So she, you know, she really tried. She's pretty good, but I'm not going to give her that award. Nope. I think I think Sorry. she's great. It's, it's not to diminish her performance in this because yes. I think she plays a really good villain replicant, strong woman kind of character. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's no Rutger Hauer. Come on. But she does have this great, like, ch she's kind of like one of the children of the damned. Yes. You know, she's she's this child who is trying to be the favorite, yeah. uh, who's, who's trying to, you know, do everything to be a number one. And she's got these, like, the, the range of her voice, she's got this kind of high, sweet voice when she's being cordial to somebody. And then she's got this deep, like, growl when she yeah. does this attack. So yeah. she's got this range that can be terrifying in it. I know. No, no Rudger Hauer, but she's she's pretty good. Well, I think it's love versus Roy Batty. You know, I think I don't think she's given as much to to do as Roy Batty. So it's not it's not the actor's fault. I do love whenever she's about to like kill somebody, she cries. Did you notice that? Like yeah. she'll mm -hmm. like tears just start streaming down her face. Well, not just she cries at other scenes too. Like when Wallace, he's he's got the new. She's trying to show him the new model, right? Yeah, and and he just talks about like, oh, it's too bad that the you know we we're still missing the womb. We can't reproduce, and he so he just sort of um he kills the replicant. Kills, but she's crying there too. Yes, right. So she kind of cries a lot. It's, it's sort of that that weird replicant area where their their emotions are sort of premature. Yeah, like she's a child. Yeah. Well, why don't we get to possibly the most controversial casting in this movie, and that is <laughs> Jared Leto as <sighs> Neander Wallace. I'll just say up front, I think Jared Leto does a fine job in this role. I think he brings a weird vibe to it, which is what it calls for. I think that he looks the part. He's got a really interesting character design because, you know, he's sort of this like douchey CEO guy, but he's blind and it's never really explained whether he was born blind or if he's deliberately blinded himself. 
but he has these neurological hookups where he has these like floating cameras that he can see through. And that's sort of how he does all of his sort of analyzing of things or whatever. It's a very, very performy performance. I don't know how to put it any oh, other yeah. way. Yeah. But apparently, because he's all method and stuff, he like wore contact lenses where he couldn't see, so he was really blind. Mm-hmm. I always wondered if like during lunch breaks he's still blind. Like <laughs> method actor Jared Leto was like, I I don't know if it's the corn or the chicken. I'm blind. Watch out for the lights. He he had a handler on set the entire time, apparently. Apparently that was the way it really went down. Sounds like a nightmare. I am not a fan. I mean, he didn't break the movie in the way that, you know, like Keanu and Dracula did or something like that. He was fine the first time I saw it. I feel like a lot of Jared Leto's performances were like, hmm, I need to process that, you know, like that. It wasn't totally terrible. And the longer I process it, I'm like, no, that fucking sucked. And like... <laughs> Every time I watch the movie, I'm in love with the movie. And then as soon as his character comes on, I'm like, oh, fuck this shit again. And and <laughs> I, I know Denis really wanted David Bowie yeah. for the part of, of Wallace. And that would have been amazing. It would have been amazing. And he fell in love with the idea of having a rock star that he was like, all right, let me get Jared Leto, even though his music can't compare to David Bowie's. He's a rock star and he'll be great. And I just feel like, Something, a mix of the character and the dialogue where it's like he doesn't understand the words that are coming out of his own mouth. And it just sounds like just like random bullshit. And he's like, can you imagine like if David Bowie or Anthony Hopkins said those words, it would have had so much more weight. Whereas the thing that Jared Leto's doing, it is the vocal equivalent of like a blind man, like fumbling around the room where he's always wondering about the next step. Yeah, he kind of he's got a sort of William Shatner type of yeah, but not to even this. in a cool way. And he actually aped the same cadence in the Little Things or what was that movie with Denzel Washington and um, it was like an HBO movie where uh, he was like a serial killer or anyway, it's like a new movie. He was doing the same cadence. He would talk to Denzel Washington and go, "Oh, are you chasing after me, sir?" And it really pisses me off when he goes, he, he brings the replicant for her birth. Her womb doesn't work, right? But he gets through telling us how they need so many of these and they're so important. And then he kills her. That makes no sense. It's just there to show that he's dangerous, evil, bad guy. But you just got through telling us why you need all these replicants and you're going to kill the one that you just... Yeah, all of his scenes have problems like that for me. Yeah, but you blame the script for that. You can't blame him for that. Yes, I don't I don't blame him entirely. But I think he he doesn't do the dialogue or the character any favors. And he just doesn't feel as smart like i don't love this the slow meandering speeches it, it just feels where tyrell was like would be fast and you know he's more human than human blah 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 he killed it yeah joe turkle seemed like an actual genius yes exactly jared leto is just like this guy he's not even elon musk like david bowie playing his nikola tesla mm. you know that like that role i could see that kind of approach being kind of amazing here in defense though of this character all he's done is build on what Terrell's done he hasn't really done anything other than just take Terrell's stuff and expand on no it. that's not that's not true oh he the famine he averted famine yeah he he created a food system synthetically oh okay he essentially saved 
the planet. He saved yeah. humanity from from dying. So the the story is is basically like the the replicants got unruly and started to attack. So he built a new model of replicant that obeyed no matter what. And then, so that's what uh, the Blade Runner's job is now to, to get rid of the last model, which is the Nexus 8s. Yes. And then he averted famine. So that's his major claim to fame is saving the human race. That's pretty good. <laughs> the backstory is is kind of interesting, and it kind of just gets fed to you in these dribs and drabs. Like, we learn that there was this big blackout where they lost all of the digital information or whatever. At one point, their K is going through the archives with this, like, bald guy. And this is, like, one of the only areas I of the movie guy. where they have any humor because the bald guy's yeah. like, oh, my mother lost all of our pictures. And Kay's like, that must have been really devastating. You must have been a really cute kid or whatever. <laughs> must have been adorable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there were three shorts made to sort of fill in the gap with, you know, that the blackout and all that. There's like an anime that actually shows the blackout. I, I tried to watch those. Yeah, they're okay. I couldn't do it. Fair enough. I mean, they're short, so. But yeah, I know they, they try to give you that backstory. So I get it. They're, they could be interesting. There's not enough Philip K. Dick in this movie, which is my main beef with it. You know, I mean, there's not that sort of paranoia. It's like at, at the third act, it really tries to get all Star Warsy with like, oh, the replicant resistance and blah. And I'm like, give me a fucking break with that shit. That's not Blade Runner. That's what I like about this story, though. It's also part of the uh, one of the problems I have with it, but I, I do like this narrative. I like that basically... What this film is about is is about slavery and it's about people trying to overthrow a government. So it's it's about a, a, a racial uprising, essentially. That's way too hopeful in the Blade Runner universe for me. I feel like there should be no hope. <laughs> oh, you're taking my alien position, Chris. Yeah. This gets into what it, what I see as is one of the major problems in the movie overall is that, you know, essentially you're talking about a movie about the theme of it is, is slaves and an uprising about slaves and all these replicants are, are white. Yeah. I don't know that. See, I don't think that it, they needed to go there. There, there's some black replicants in there. They're just not any of the main characters. Well, there's the blade runner, there's the orphanage guy, and then there's the guy who analyzes the horse. I think those are the three people of color and didn't it never occurred to me but yeah there's maybe a problem there but I, I'm kind of with Chris though it's like I see your point that that's what the movie ends up being about but that's not really what the movie is about most of the movie Wallace brings up like oh we found slavery distasteful so we've had to move on to this new kind of slavery so it's in there it's definitely an ingredient in the stew but it doesn't actually come into play until that last act. And that's where everything kind of switches gears. Not really, though. I mean, all of his interactions with everybody for the main character of Kay is about his position in society. Like he has to, you know, madam is what he has to call his boss. And she's always telling like he can't disobey her and she gets a snippy with him if he even tries to. And then when he meets love for the first time, he's like, oh, you have a name. Like, you must be special. So I don't even have that. So it's definitely a component in his character, which is, I think, again, it's... I know that the, you know, the detective story is about him finding out that he's more than what he thought he was, which was 
and underclass. If replicants can give birth, if they can reproduce, then they're equal to humans. So it really is kind of about a class structure and this one main character finding his own role in this, like as, as far as his identity. So I think it's, it's an important theme in the story. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. You're, you're helping me to see the light. Let me ask you this. In that later scene between Kay and uh, Robin Wright's character where she comes to his apartment, is it implied that she wants to have sex with him at one point? Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. She's she's flirting with him. And, and again, this... It's like, what happens if I finish that? Right, yeah. But if you think about, like, his, again, his position, his role in society... Like, she's totally crossing the line there. She's oh, sexually yeah. harassing him. Right. But you're saying it's okay because he's a replicant. He kind of has to do whatever she says. Exactly. You're right. I think you're right, Troy. I think that your reading of it is totally correct. But it's a little weird that the movie is just kind of feeding you that in dribs and drabs. And then the third act is suddenly like, this is about an uprising. Yeah. So that's how I felt the first time that I saw it. And then, and then that scene where Freza, is that her name? Freza, yes. the character, when she comes in and, and all these replicants sort of like come out of the shadows, I was like, oh man, like I kind of couldn't really see it because I was so invested in this sort of conceptual yeah. idea of replicants. I was really caught up in the replicant idea. And it really wasn't until a viewing or two afterwards where I sort of now saw this other narrative thread. And it really made a lot more sense as far as how he, it, it really came out with his interactions in these characters and especially the the scene where Robin writes in his apartment. Like yeah. that scene really kind of put that all on display. Like he, he was uncomfortable. He's already been told that he can't disobey her. Like in a prior, he said, oh, I didn't even know if this was an option right. for me to disobey. And she's like, that attaboy, there you go. It gives more power to that scene in the uprising too. Once you start, looking at it that way because i agree with you before that uprising scene i was like oh man this is now we're kind of going a little off the rails here because again like like i was more invested in his personal journey whether he's a replicant or not but i think you kind of have to add his role in society i think i agree with everything you're saying about this concept through the character of k but when it gets to like all the other replicants, I'm like, I don't, I don't give a shit. And it never pays off. To me, it just seems like a third act thing that they're just throwing in there to, oh, maybe we'll explore this in a future sequel. And it just, to me, it never pays off. So I understand what you're saying. And I think it works through the character of Kay and his interactions with like society and whatnot. But when you start throwing in this, this replicant uprising thing that never pays off just feels so just hacky writer you know oh let's do a res uh, resistance future war of, of replicants and blah blah blah. Oh, it sucks it's maybe a little misconstrued as far as like how it's interwoven in the, in the narrative yes yes thank you i do agree try i definitely noticed it more in this viewing that it is seated in better and you're helping to yeah. me to even see it even more. But I'm also kind of on Chris's side where there's something about the way it's presented narratively that feels just, like Chris was saying, it feels like another person came in and wrote the end of the movie yeah. and was like, I'm going to make this about an uprising of replicants. That never happens, yeah. Really what the movie is, for most of it, is this journey that Kay, that Kay is on to figure out who he is 
because he's discovered this number carved on the tree where the bones were found, and it's a date, and Kay has this memory that he relates to uh, Joy. He's related it to her a bunch of times, but the movie does it again. He's talking about how he has this memory when he was a child living in this, like, Freddy Krueger <laughs> orphanage or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the boiler room orphanage that he was kept in. And he had this toy horse, and all the other kids wanted it, so he hid the horse in this furnace. And the date that was written on the horse was the date that he finds on this tree. So he starts to believe that he is this child that was born part replicant, part human. So that becomes the big next chunk of the movie where he's trying to sort of chase this mystery down. So a sort of little Easter egg in that in that scene, though, is apparently that it's a giveaway that um, all the boys in the orphanage have shaved heads. Ah, and, okay. and it's a girl because she has hair. Hmm. I have some questions about that whole orphanage. <laughs> let's ask those questions now. Sure. And let's try to answer them. First of all, I get that it's a dystopian future, but I mean, they can't find any other place to put children other than the Freddy Krueger boiler room. Oh, come on. I love that. And... Uh, they live under a, a overturned satellite dish. That's amazing. Yeah. I actually love the production design here because it kind of reminds me of Alien 3. Like <laughs> yeah. suddenly we're in like a yeah, David Fincher totally. movie. It's well, like, San Diego is the, the garbage dump for LA. I kind of love that concept too. It's like throw it all in San Diego. Also, apparently this has been the, the orphanage since the first Blade Runner. Like it's been around that long because the the child was sent there almost immediately. Like I feel like there were facilities that looked a little nicer than that in the first Blade Runner movie. And if I want to nitpick a little bit with the DNA thing, he has the card with the DNA right there. Can't he figure out if the person is male or female? No. He kind of just sits there with these like, there's two, there's two cards. One's male, one's female. I'm like, but you have the DNA sequence here. Shouldn't that the sexual They were identical. Yes, but I'm sure you could tell one way or another if it's male or female. Do you know you know what I'm saying? Like by the DNA. Oh, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So the DNA would explain that. Yeah. I also feel like if Kay wanted to find out if he was part replicant, part human, he could probably do it some other way, like through science or whatever. I mean, <laughs> replicants can see serial numbers in their like skin cells. Like I know he probably doesn't want to go into the crime lab and have them test him or anything uh, is there a test for half human half replicant like probably not yet how would he, they even know I, I know what you're saying about the the dna sequencing but i love that scene where he's he's reading entire it dna sequences like flashcards, like just reading them off and he's on like an old moviola almost. Yeah. i love that it's like so ana analog and he has to like push the things oh yeah and the i i noticed this time the interface on a lot of these things when it's showing the up clip when it's full screen on those interfaces they're like kind of the screens are scratched and have dirt and mm -hmm. dust on them so those little details are pretty amazing and and the machine speaks japanese and yeah. he totally understands it you know i just love that like the city speak kind of continues where everyone kind of just knows all languages. Oh, we skipped over we skipped over Gaff's cameo. You know, I was thinking about that cameo today. It is kind of a throwaway scene. It's totally a throwaway. I, I love it, but there's no he doesn't give him any information. Well, yeah, it's because he's on Deckard's side. Yeah, he's like. Oh, I had a question to ask you guys though. What? So I read that 
I thought his origami piece was a bull. No, it's a sheep. Saying that Deckard is stubborn, so it's a sheep. I read that it was a sheep today. Yeah, I would have brought it up, but it didn't matter. It's, it's just yeah. a fan service scene. It is a fan service. Scene. I liked seeing him. I liked his yeah. origami piece. No dish. I really enjoy the fact that Joy is sort of along for the ride at this part, and she's all like, "Yeah, you're special." Yeah. And like she's there when he's looking at these DNA sequences and everything. Well, she also kind of helps him because she can record. In that scene, in that DNA scene, that's why he kind of put out the the fire stick or whatever it is that she's on the emulator. Emanator. Emanator, because he he needed to uh, make a recording of the um, what he was finding. So she can kind of she's kind of like a droid in a weird way. She's like a she's a companion, but she's also has these other functions that uh, uh, can help him practically. Sebastian, when they go for that ride, that's another one of those scenes like the original Blade Runner where they reflect on the beauty of the world they created, you know, where they just, I love that music cue where they're flying over the Sepulveda seawall and they just go under that crazy um, architecture. And it's just, it's so beautiful. I love it. And it's fully realized. It's, it's really one of the cooler scenes in the movie. Is that the scene with the waterfall? Yeah, exactly. He's like, let's go for a ride. And then it's just them. And it's like this, it's kind of one of the only major sounding cues in the whole movie. And so it's kind of hopeful and, and fun. How do you feel about the Hans Zimmer score? I wish we heard what Johan Johannesson, is that what, was that his name? Oh, so there was a different score that was already composed? They originally worked with him, and then for some reason, I don't know, it wasn't working, and they brought in Hans and some other guy. I feel like he's Hans has come in a few times because of that reason, right? Hasn't yeah. he been brought in before? They've thrown out other scores and then like let's get Hans Zimmer He's let's just get a fixer him yeah exactly some. exactly I'm sure they were tempting with like everything of his anyway so they were like let's just get him in here right. I think he did a fine job he didn't you know break any real new ground but it's it's adequate and it sounds cool futuristically like a mix of analog and digital sounds the only memorable parts of the score I think are the ones that are are being um, reminiscent of the Van Giles score yes <laughs> is Van Giles dead? Was there a reason Van Giles couldn't do this? Yes, he's dead. I think he died before this came out. Well, he's saying Van Giles because that's uh, Sebastian's preferred way. Van Giles, yes, yes. No, it's Van Giles, guys. <laughs> the score's fine. It's not one of the stronger parts of the film. I feel like the cast definitely is probably the strongest. The cast, I mean, all the... Supporting characters, everybody in this is just cast. Amazing. Jared Leto, I guess, would be your one complaint. But yes. And then the production design. But yeah, the score is is lower on the, um, you know, the the components of the film for me. Yeah, I agree. It's fine. It does the job, but it definitely has that kind of like Hans Zimmer operating on autopilot-y kind of yeah. feeling. He's doing a good job recalling elements of the original score but there's nothing in it that jumps out at you where you're like "Ooh, that's new and right, cool like right. it's it just does the job it's mostly just kind of ambient stuff and I, I feel like another memorable part of the score is just like again when he's flying over the city and there's sort of this industrial pounding and there's this kind of weird sound that, oh yeah I, that sound that almost like motorcycle revving that's like yeah that like revving noise yeah that's great but i wouldn't really that's that's more of like a almost an effect it's not yeah. really a a score it's not a theme or anything it's a thing where like a, they don't really put 
music into like the forefront of movies as much as you know in 1982 where they used to yeah they'd be like john williams exactly it's got to be that good in order to be like this is going to be pushed right up front so you can hear it because like i think the stuff that hound zimmer did works you know i like joy's theme when they're on the roof and i like their their ride music but you're right it's not it's not front and center good let's talk for a minute about the memory designer um, after uh, Kay goes to visit the orphanage in San Diego, where he's first menaced by these sort of marauders and stuff, but he eventually gets to the orphanage where Lenny James is the cruel orphan master or whatever, and he finds the horse that he remembers from his dreams. Now he's convinced that his memories were real because he has a piece of physical evidence to back that up to in order to figure that out they go to or he goes to the person that designs the memories that the replicants have dr anna staline and she is um she's played by a french actress i believe carla jury who i've never heard of and never seen in anything before but she's probably in like french movies but we get this really interesting scene where she has this device that is sort of like a camera lens and she sort of twists it around and she builds these memories that the replicants are going to have, you know, basically out of, I don't know, out of nothing, these holograms that she's building, just twisting this device. And she's a character that has some sort of um, physiological problem where she has to be sort of boy in the bubbled, where she's kept behind glass. She's in like a glass chamber. But I really enjoy this sort of scene because I just love this like constructing of memories thing and she's sort of making these adjustments and like she really likes birthday parties so we sort of see her making a birthday party it's very cool what do you guys think of this character and this concept I this was like a new addition to the Blade Runner universe and I loved it a lot of what this movie does really really well is expand on the original Blade Runner concepts yes and it, and it does them, puts them wonderfully into the story, which is really hard to do rather than just, you know, let's let's explore these ideas more. But, you know, sometimes this cannot really fit into the story where these new ideas are, are working so well in the narrative. But her character is really awesome. Uh, her costume suddenly like she's the one person who's like in a clean white sort of normal looks like she shops at like banana Republic or something or like, mm-hmm. you know, gap. Like she just seems like the one anchor out of all of these characters. That's the most human. And we later learn that she's, you know, half human, but the device too, the camera lens is a great prop because if you think about like cameras are memories, like those are what create memories. So yeah. having a this thing that looks like she's just toying with a, a zoom lens or something, and that's somehow what builds memories is is a great idea because it makes no sense. Like the, the way she's working this thing doesn't really make any practical sense, but she's just basically adjusting dials on this thing i kind of thought of you when i saw that i'm like i bet troy loves that prop Troy would have loved to have that thing yeah love that prop it's a real troy type of thing it just looks like a zoom lens yeah it really is yeah i realized this time like how kind of perfect that is like what else would you think of what object would you think of that creates memories but a camera 
Good point. I think it delves into the theme of memories and what this movie is doing um, and building upon with Blade Runner. You know, I mean, like whenever you wonder about your life and like why you can't remember your childhood memories and some of them are so weird and opaque. And I like that she says we recall with our feelings because like, you know, you can't always remember the exact detail or, you know, things get jumbled and but your earliest childhood memories like, yeah, you're right. It's just like I just remember a feeling or, you know. And did that even really happen sometimes? And, you know, that just feeds into the whole sort of paranoia and theme of Blade Runner and like what was real and what happened to you and how we all kind of get thrown into life in media res because nobody remembers being born. And Right, right. Yeah. And then again, that scene with with Gosling, you know, pays off when like, you know, both sides of the story. It's she's like she she thinks she's in trouble because he got implanted with one of her real memories, which is illegal. Yeah. So she's like, oh, shit, he's here to bust me, but he's really just totally not concerned with her at all and just leaves in a huff. And that's why she's like, and she specifically says, this is real, someone dreamt this. Not you dreamt this, <laughs> but this is real, someone did. And so she she just like plays her part perfectly and he leaves without getting her into trouble. And He freaks out. Yeah, yeah. Were you guys on to... Uh her as the uh, as the child no i never knew that i think by the time i realized that he wasn't it i figured it was her yeah let me ask you guys this because you seem to have sort of a better handle on a lot of these things in this movie than i do so <laughs> is the whole idea that he has this memory that was hers is that just a coincidence that's a good question or was he deliberately given that memory so that he would become this catalyst to make all this shit happen because it's a big coincidence. You know what I mean? I would say it's, you know, the second part of what you were saying, which is basically part of the puzzle, as they keep saying in, in the movie, like to make things more complicated and spread out the evidence all over the place. Right. So that this person thinks he's he has this memory of of going in the orphanage, which leads people further away from the truth. Right, because they've specifically said, as Chris pointed out, that this is a real memory, so it's illegal. So it's not all the replicants. Yeah. All of the replicants don't have the same memory. This is something that he has that he shouldn't have. So that means somebody had to deliberately implanted in him that to me kind of jives with that whole scene where she uh love at the very end is like i'm the best one to him as if like they were in competition because she's like you know she's constantly following him and you're right like oh is he sort of a plant from wallace where they put this fake memory in there but no how would they know that that's the one to put there so that was like a deckard move is what you're saying troy is that like to throw them off the scent to throw them off the scent that's what my i would imagine yeah i mean it's i, w I would guess that's pretty deliberate i don't think there's any hard evidence one way or another i yeah. feel like you don't really know where why he got the memory or which is probably a good thing like if you explain it it might fall flat Maybe, yeah, because there was a boy and a girl, they were like, all right, well, we have the girl, and if anybody finds it, we'll say that it's Ryan Gosling. And then so right. that way, that's the trail. The d girl supposedly died, and then the boy is left with like an open trail. The boy disappeared. Exactly, and that's why you're, they're leading him off in the wrong direction. Back to love when you just said, like, I'm, I'm the best one. I love how she, love, I got to stop saying love around love, but how she, her character is so insecure and she's mm. she's like the one replicant under Wallace right right she's first assistant to Wallace and and 
it makes for a great villain to be insecure of your position. Yeah, you want to be beware of those insecure kiss asses that want to get their job done and make daddy happy. Oh shit. She's such she's like the sycophant, but she's constantly having to tell people like how important she is. Mm -hmm. So uh, the next sort of big thing that happens is Kay goes back to the police station and he fails his baseline test because he's so flustered, I guess, from learning, believing that he is now this hybrid. And he tells Joshi that he has actually killed the replicant hybrid, which has been his task to find this hybrid and kill it. So he lies, which is a big thing. Replicants of his uh, design are not supposed to be able to lie. Assuming that the toy horse was given to him by his father, he takes the toy horse to the, I'm the Captain Now. Yeah, I love The him. actor Bacardi Abdi is Doc Badger. Love this cameo. It's so great. And uh, we get a little bit of a callback to the original Blade Runner here because he keeps trying to sell him like a goat or something. Yeah. I can get you a horse. Yeah, and Kay's like, no, I don't want a horse. I love that he's also... He's like, you're you're rich. You have real wood. And like that's like like the, the best thing you could possibly have, which again also clarifies why the, the boys in the orphanage wanted wanted the little wood horse because right. it's expensive. You know, you, you you get that, who knows? Get out. Yeah. They figure out because there is a ton of like fallout or something on the horse. It could only come from one place, and that place is Las Vegas, which is a now an abandoned wasteland because of a dirty bomb and so we get this really striking design work and cinematography yeah. where Kay goes to Las Vegas and there's so like these great. giant statues and stuff so this is Sid Mead coming back in to do yeah, all the Las totally, Vegas stuff totally you can tell was that an old design that he had done like for the original Blade Runner or I don't think so I remember hearing both that like he kind of, they were like hey dust off these designs huh. and let's do it for 2049 but um it's like one of the last things that he designed, though, right? Wasn't he sick by this point and then died shortly after? I don't know. I just know that he did it. But yeah, those statues are amazing. It's a little too bad that because this place needs to look like it's been dirty bombed, that we have to have this orange haze over everything. So you can barely see it. I mean, it. it's cool. I think it's cool. It works for me, man. Yeah, it works. It's like it's like Fury Road. Everything's orange. It looks great. I like it. But what it, what is the deal with the bees? Because that was a little confusing to me. I don't know. Deckard's growing them so that he can have like honey because he wants cheese. And so he's... What are they eating? Uh, I think that, you know, they're in his, in Deckard's apartment, there are these weird sort of grow tubes. It's when Joy's looking around and you actually hear the Deckard. Ooh, he's... I got kind of that it was part of whatever Deckard, how he's surviving right. there. So Deckard is surviving there by making these sort of like plant generated okay. grow tubes. It's part of whatever system he's got going. He's either cultivating these bees because it sure looks like a beehive like that a person would create. Or they're saying that like, oh, life is coming back after a dirty bomb. I don't think so. <laughs> Apparently, no, no, there's nothing. Nothing is living in this world. Decker definitely made this happen, uh, whether they're artificial or not. And I think I think they would have to be artificial. Kay is supposed to be transfixed by it because he's never seen a bee before. And so he's just fascinated by it. Right. And then the weirdest part after this is that there's like this distant piano cue, which I totally thought was score for like like 10 times watching this, but apparently it's supposed to be Deckard playing that piano, playing Brahms or whatever. And I'm like, 
I never caught that. I caught it this time only because I had the subtitles on and it said Mm -hmm. piano music being played in the background. Like it says that on the screen. Exactly. Otherwise, you're just like sound design. Yeah, totally. Like that was a little bridge too far. I I didn't get that. Well, let's talk about the meeting of our main character, Kay, with our original Blade Runner hero, Deckard. Uh, They have a a scene where Kay has come into this old casino or whatever that Deckard has now made his home. And Deckard shows up with the classic Blade Runner gun and holds it on Kay. And he starts talking about how he really misses cheese. Apparently that's a line from Treasure Island. Oh, okay. Yeah, wouldn't you happen to have a piece of cheese? I only caught, again, this is only because I had the subtitles on, so I could clearly see what the dialogue was. Well, he says, Treasure Island, he reads. And so, yeah, like he was quoting it, right? He says, oh, you read too, Treasure Island. Yeah. So that's a line from Treasure Island. No, I caught that there was a line from Treasure Island because like Chris said, uh, Deckard says that. So they have this kind of fight where they uh, go at it, uh, and at one point, Kay's sort of hiding in this hologram room where we get an Elvis routine in hologram. I love it, yeah. (laughs) I'm not so crazy about this. I get it. It's Vegas. Oh, this is, if you're going to Vegas, come on. What else? Yeah, you got to have it. It's so on the nose. Totally. Yeah, but it's in the middle of a scene, like they're having this crazy fight so it's just kind of background noise you get a little noise. Liberace back there too exactly yeah you get some Come dancing on. girls and get some Sinatra apparently uh, Harrison Ford really hit Ryan Gosling during one of these takes like for real whacked him and like if you can <laughs> find the still of it on online is Ryan Gosling's just like Ooh, and it's like you can basically see the Tweety Birds in, in you know outside of his head because the Harrison Ford just like whacked him one and and you get it because like man if you had to do those takes over and over again you might end up hitting him but fortunately they got along like gangbusters. How do you feel about uh, now grumpier older Harrison Ford as Deckard? I feel like he could have gotten a new shirt. Maybe I feel like. Did you guys notice I'm wearing my I'm I'm Deckard. Your Deckard shirt. I deliberately wore this shirt. Exactly. It's like, That's all it is. Just a gray t-shirt. <laughs> this is gonna be my Halloween costume. I'm Deckard 2049. Yeah, I'm Deckard. I'm old Deckard. Well, because I have like gray hair now, so I'll just be like, yeah, I'm Deckard. What? Didn't you see Blade Runner 2049? I'm Deckard. He could have at least had like a beard or like a little bit more of like a rough, you know, nomad thing going. But I like, though, that his head is kind of shaved on like the sides a little bit. Yeah, I like his new haircut. It's better than his Blade Runner haircut. It is better. I I think Harrison Ford uh, does a good job here. This was in that like really narrow window where Harrison Ford came back to do a few classic roles where you feel like he's actually showing up to do a job again and he's like actually kind of cares about bringing these characters back to life more so i just love the next scene they have where they're drinking whiskey together and they're like they're sort of hashing things out and i love when Kay has that moment was where like he's like i never took you for to be one for bullshit (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, their lines are great it's a good line also the thought of like that nothing no life exists in this world anymore but he has he, he says he has millions of bottles of whiskey. So he's just living out his days drinking yeah. whiskey every day. And hanging out with that dog. That, that's yeah. so great. Yeah. The dog has got to be fake, yeah. right? It's not a real dog. That's basically the reference to the, the eternal question. You know, I think 
that was Harrison Ford's answer. He's like, is it real? And he goes, I don't know. Ask him. Because if you ask Harrison right. Ford, he'll say he's not. And so, you know, I think that's kind of his answer. I really like Harrison Ford here. You got to have him in there. And he, he shows up to play and he's doing a good job. His wardrobe could be a little more exciting, <laughs> but he's delivering, I think. I don't think that the fighting or the action scenes in this movie are anything that special. No. I don't really need them to be. But they do kind of feel like afterthoughts. I kind of feel like those are the parts of the movie where I'm kind of just not that interested yeah. or invested. Like when people start fighting, I'm just kind of like, eh. And, and there's, you can tell that Denis doesn't care about it, but it's just got to be in there. So like people have to fight. He's like Nolan where, yeah, he's not interested in action, but he knows it's a sauce that has to be on. I'm kind of on his side. Big elaborate fight scenes, I kind of can check out of. So I'd rather have a director not care and keep it to a minimum than yeah. like not care and put a ton of action in that right, bores right. me to tears. And, you know, there are certain moments like when he gets out of the orphanage, out of the spinner at the orphanage where he grabs that guy and like breaks his back. And I was like, that's pretty awesome. And the fight with uh, Sapper Morton was was kind of cool. So like there, there are moments where, where it's good, you know. I think it's faithful to the original Blade Runner the main problem with this movie, and that's not to say I think this is a bad movie, I think it's a good movie, but I do think it has a sort of central problem. And that problem is, is that Denis is trying to capture the sort of languid, we're going to soak in every scene feeling of Blade Runner. The problem is, is he has way more story to get through mm. here than Blade Runner. So you end up with this movie that if it was like tighter, like he could have gotten all the story in in two hours or right. two hours and some change. But because he really wants to like languish in things, the scenes are all like longer than you feel like they should be. They're all kind of like slow. There's lots of slow moments. And it's just a problem of having too much story I agree. versus like trying to be too slow. I think that's a, a fair argument. I'm I'm Absolutely. usually in favor of slower paced movies, but I can right. see when you have that balancing act like you're talking about with a, with a lot of narrative to get through, how that can be a fault. And I can see that as probably one of the bigger reasons why audiences may have been turned off. Exactly. For what it's worth for me, I would have preferred dumping a ton of story out of the last act and then given the acts one and two time to breathe. You know, I, I could have dumped all that resistance stuff and just like, as soon as they grab Deckard, just have Kay go after him and then and then that's it. That's the end of your movie right there. We don't need any of this resistance bullshit. Well, I see why it's in there. I just I just think that like if you're gonna have this much story, you need to do a little bit of compressing. Yes. I can see also I know you guys are still turned off to the resistance idea, but I, I still feel like it's a really important part of the story. And I can see what you're saying, Sebastian, as spending so much time lingering on these the, on the world, how the resistance narrative part of the story gets shortchanged. Is, yeah. Exactly. And it's, and it really is an important part. So if you compressed it, like you're saying, that would have worked in a lot better. Do, do you guys think that this whole like, oh, if, if, if the world knows that replicants can have babies, this breaks the world. Were you guys 100% buying that? That's what Robin Wright's character yeah. is so freaked out yeah, about. Yeah. What did you guys think of that? That's why she sends Kay on this whole mission. 
is that what a police commissioner's job is? I mean, it seems like something that would come down from like a politician. She says this is like a bomb going off. I know, but is it really? Like, it just seems a little bit far-fetched for me. Well, it seems like in the, in this world, yeah, for basically her job running the Blade Runner division is to do exactly that, to make sure that replicants are kept in order. It kind of half works for me, but but there's a my spider sense is kind of going off the more I watch those scenes and I'm like, does is that real? I think it's a little weird just because your two antagonistic forces are concerned with it for two totally different reasons. Yeah. You've got her, she's concerned because it's going to break the world and there's going to be a war. And then you've got um, Wallace who wants to find the hybrid because then he can make more and more replicants. So like those are two totally different motivations for your two antagonistic forces. And it's just a little weird. You're being asked to care yeah. like, uh oh, well, what's going to happen yeah. if then this gets out in the world, which you don't really care because you're on Kay's side. You're like, who cares? I hope they it does come out that there are replicant right. hybrids and I hope that things change exactly. for the better for yeah. the replicants. So you don't really care about that. But then also you don't want Wallace to get his way and to be able to just have replicants reproduce themselves for his own purposes and greed. And then at the top of that, you care because Kay thinks that he's this special person. And, yeah. and that's where you're, you're most caught up in Kay's interest Absolutely. in this. Like, and that's why it overshadows the other two uh, reasons yeah. for finding the child. But I, I liked the idea of having a triangle of, of different characters for different reasons, all trying to hunt down the same prize, right? Yeah. That's a great uh, device, I think, for a story to work. It just screams to me like, oh, we're putting this in for a third sequel and we're laying the groundwork for like the Blade Runner universe. And I'm like, Ugh, I'd rather have it cut out. I think uh, I'm kind of hearing what you're saying, Sebastian, of how, like, I think it's an interesting uh, narrative device, but I, I what you're saying is that it's, it wasn't working. It's like we need to we need to be equally invested in each character's pursuits for that to work. Not to keep getting back and into this, and I feel like that's why this sort of idea of the resistance is then brought in in the third act because it's like so now you've got to care that exactly. I I don't give a shit. Now you need to become invested in this idea that the replicants can free themselves. Right. And I think the way that that would have worked is if. Well, that wouldn't have worked because Robin Wright was killed by love. But yeah. if she was aware of that resistance, then that would have worked. You know what my rewrite would have been? To seed in this idea that there was some sort of weird replicant religion where they believed in like a Christ figure that was going to come and right. be this hybrid thing. Even if it was just in the background, like you saw, like like replicants have re religion. Well, it's kind of seated. It's he's a miracle, right? Like, but it's subtle. It's too subtle. It's too subtle. Yeah. You know what? My problem with this whole thing is like it, and it doesn't break the movie. You know, when I first saw the movie, like you were saying, Sebastian, I was totally blown away, and none of these warts really surface until like multiple, multiple viewings. And I don't want to rag on the movie too much, but. The part that really gets me is where is where the the leader of the resistance gives Kay his like orders to kill Deckard. Like the math that she does, she's like Deckard knows everything, and they're gonna get it from him now. You must kill Deckard. Right. And I'm like, 
give me a break. There's no way we're actually going to think that Kay's ever going to fucking shoot Harrison Ford. That's not going to happen. That just right. seems like a, a total like, oh, let's just write this this really bad math equation of, of reasons why he needs to go kill him at the very end. And I'm like, it doesn't work at all. No one gives it. Yeah. It doesn't add any of the suspense. Just go rescue Deckard. Yes, they just want to say that. Like the Wallace Corporation has come to to Las Vegas and they've brought their spinners and they've shot up the, uh, Deckard's hotel and they've captured Deckard because they want Deckard to find the child or something. It's like fuzzy as to why they need Deckard so bad. They bring him back to the the Wallace Corporation, and we do get the scene where to tempt Deckard to, I guess, give away the location of his child, which we've already learned he doesn't even know. Yeah, right. So we know he doesn't even have the answer to this. So we're getting this scene where it's like, oh, no, they're going to tempt Deckard. And what they tempt him with is a new clone of Rachel. And we get a pretty impressive de-aging. It's a, it's a whole CG character. Yeah, it was put over a, a stand-in that looked similar to Rachel. But Deckard isn't going to go for it because he can't, because he doesn't have the information. <laughs> <laughs> and then Wallace shoots the clone or whatever. So it's this weird thing where we're getting these two, you know, this is where we're going with our climax and they both kind of don't work. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's like, on one hand, go kill Deckard, which we know that that K isn't going to do. And then on the other hand, it's like, you better tell us where your child is, Deckard, even though you don't, we know you don't know where it is. And they're even like, all right, well, we're going to go take you off world to torture you. <laughs> Why do they need to take him off world to torture him? Because apparently off world, you, there's no laws. Like you can, you can do whatever you what want. What laws like... does this guy have to follow? <laughs> He's like living in a castle. All the best torture devices are off world. He was like, we have off world. It's just a whatever. reason to get them in a yeah. ship. Totally. So there's, you can have a chase scene. That's why. Yeah. There's a lot of clumsy plot mechanics going on here to get us yes. to the end of the movie. And I think the whole last third act or whatever you want to call it suffers because of it. I agree. They don't even have a moment where Kay's like just like listening to the police radio and then realizes, okay, a Wallace team is is heading to LAX or something. All they had to do is have him listening in. Like how the hell does he even know where like right. when when to go get him? Like, yeah, the whole third act of this kind of like falls apart. And like, you know, I mean, we do get that iconic shot of him next to the on the bridge seeing the full size joy. And that's an incredible image. That's very yeah. that's the, the most iconic image from this Blade Runner 2049. Like, I know you were saying like an alien three that, you know, that the alien next to Sigourney was iconic. I feel like this is the iconic shot. Oh, that one frame just says so much. Yeah. Like this tiny little person with this overpowering artificial pleasure hologram thing c controlling everything. It's so good that it carries you through yes, this clumsy exactly. <laughs> plot mechanics. You're like, yeah, okay, fine. All right. Now he's, now he's ready to go be the hero. And one of the, greatest special effects scenes is actually when that spinner comes into Deckard's apartment and kicks up all the dust. Apparently that was like a real built spinner and that they deleted, you know, like the turbine that it was on, but it was just like, it does a full circle in the thing. We got to see his, the old spinner for like a second. He didn't even get to go inside of it. Yeah. That's one of those things where you're like, Oh, he's going to get in the spinner and then nope, <laughs> boom, it blows up. Wallace is now out of the movie which is another weird thing that our main bad guy doesn't actually meet his 
demise. I guess like you're saying, Chris, because maybe they're setting it up for a sequel or whatever. But we have Love transporting Deckard in this transport shuttle going along the wall to get to uh, whatever LAX or wherever you go now to go up into space so they can torture Deckard in space. And yeah, Kay shows up and like shoots them down and they end up down at the sort of base of the wall. Like they're on the ocean side, obviously, right? Because the water's all coming up. And we get this fight that takes place in the shuttle where it's filling up with water, which is really cool imagery. Yeah. And Deckard is like in handcuffs, so he can't escape. And you get some good suffering Harrison Ford, which is always great to watch. I don't know, man. He feels like at the beginning when he's just standing there looking so helpless, I'm like, what? What is this? Like Harrison Ford should be like at least banging these cuffs against something to try and escape. But it's like there's several shots of just poor helpless Harrison Ford just sitting there like an old man going, oh, I hope this fight works out. Oh. I'm like, oh, come on. Give him something better to do. There are things that I really love about this sort of little final action sequence. I love conceptually what's going on. I love all the water. I knew you would. I knew you'd love that water. I love the scene where... Finally, Kay gets the upper hand and he's holding love under the water. And we get this shot looking up from her point of view, the sort of like the surface of the water. It's kind of rough. I mean, it's like a man just using his brute force against a woman to drown her. It's like in the original Blade Runner, it's cool because he's so easily you know, takes out this woman that's running away from him. Whereas here it's like, yeah, love did suck. So it's it's nice that he's killing her, but so you don't get quite the sympathy. We've also seen love kick people's asses like hardcore, right. no, I'm not saying like it's, way yeah. more hardcore than yeah. him. Like she's like doing these crazy like spin True. kicks and stuff. Like she's very much established as being a fearsome, fearsome yeah. badass. So I do feel they've sort of earned yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's kicked his ass this whole time. You know, this is just like the final moment. I get what you're saying. Optic-wise, probably not great, especially if this is the only scene of the movie you're watching. <laughs> but it is earned. My other disappointment is that, like, yeah, he doesn't do anything all that special other than just drown her. Like, you know, usually... Deckard will be like, think of some cool thing to do, like hide the gun here or do this or that, you know, and it's really just like a, it's one of those apocalypse now, like brute strength moments where it's just the score and the cinematography that's carrying you through this idea of just him strangling. Her. And he, yeah, and I get what Denis is trying to do. He's trying to have a sort of similarly downplayed climax as in the original but it has none of the poetry. There's no tears and rain moment. There's no poetic moment in any of this. The tears and rain moment is saved for the uh, the memory facility because it it like completely alludes to that right. when he's right. sitting on yeah. the stairs. It actually plays that theme. Yeah, it's the yeah. one recognizable theme from the first movie. So that is definitely, definitely there. You know what I mean, though. Like, as far as the the sort of showdown between our main villain and hero, it's just a fight. It's fine. I get what you're saying. The real poetic moment comes later. And it's before also the joy hologram. So, you know, it's all in there. But it's it's lackluster compared to how A-plus the rest of the movie is. And it's lackluster compared to the original Blade Runner. Yes. Like, if you're hoping that this is going to be as good as that, nope. It's fine, and I and I appreciate that we don't end in some giant CGI battle. Yeah, yes. But at the same time, 
after living through so many movies with giant CGI battles in the end, it's kind of feels a little well, low Sebastian, key. it's all about the water, you know? I mean, like, it's so funny that this is like they created this <laughs> giant wave machine for this whole thing. And it's really not that special because, like, we all have seen waves and, like, you don't actually realize, like, oh, this is special because this isn't on a beach. This is on a set. This is like a metal steel wall that they've created here. And all the waves are are, are artificial, but it doesn't register in your mind as, like, impressive because... We've all been on the beach. I can tell you what could have improved this. One, for them to have shot this sequence during the day. Mm. And two, if they had given us some kind of big spectacular shots of like where we're far away and we see the shuttle, like little tiny shuttle up against this giant wall and these huge waves hitting it. It's not visually spectacular enough. I didn't really mind this, this scene as much as you guys are down on it, but I I think it would have been amazing in the daylight if you would have seen like the world around them because it does feel really claustrophobic because you 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 can't see any other set piece yeah. beside the spinner or the the shuttle. I wish it looked like the scene where Kylo Ren and yes, in Rise. Uh, Rey fight yeah. in in Rise of Skywalker, oh, yeah. like something like that. Yeah, if they had the fight on the top and the waves were like crashing up against it at high tide or something like that, badass. It needed more spectacle. It is kind of weird because the, it doesn't even need to be during the day. Like so much of this world is yeah, artificially yeah. lit anyways. Like you could have just had a, a weird haze like a a glow along the the water or something in the background city and stuff yeah i can totally see how this could have been hinted at being a little more spectacular and still having the same like kind of low-key fight all right so we're at the end of the movie uh Kay delivers deckard to uh dr staline's uh installation her lab and Kay has been mortally wounded at this point. Uh, Love has got some good stabs in before he killed her. So Kay sort of collapses on the stairs and it's snowing and very visually beautiful here. And as Troy mentioned, we're getting the tears and rain theme. Yeah, farewell. Yeah, farewell. And he dies and Deckard goes in to meet his daughter and he puts his hand up against the glass and she goes to put her hand up to meet his and that's the end of the movie. There was a great moment in, uh, in an interview I saw where uh, somebody asked Hans Zimmer, they're like, are you reusing any of the cues from from the original Blade Runner? And he totally looked like over at his producer. He's like, can we say this? He's like... Um, we are doing one cue, but we can't tell you what. And I'm like, obviously, yeah, if, if they had let the cat out of the bag that they were going to use farewell, yeah. but that, that sent it home for me. And I got emotionally invested in that in Kay's journey. And the feeling was there when, when they bring that back in and he just leans back and, and the snow. And I think for me, that's, that's one of the poignant moments when you realize like Kay, is is not special by birth, but he's special through his actions, through sacrificing, you know, his life to save and to bring Decker to where his daughter is. Like that's what makes him special. Well, they said there's a line in the movie that says it says like one of the most human things you can do is to die for the cause or something like that. But it's kind of like a literal tears and rain because he he opens up his coat and he's there's or there's yeah. blood dropping and melding with the snow that's that's hitting it. It's a good enough scene that it's sort of uh, saving grace of this otherwise somewhat clunky third act. Yeah, it's poetic and poignant, and it's the way the movie should end. 
Oh yeah, and Harrison gives it gives it his all with his hand on the glass. I feel like he's doing yeah. some legit acting there. Like you were saying, he's not just phoning it in for a victory lap. He's he's giving something. As I said, uh, the box office of this was not too hot. The budget of the film was about $185 million. It only grossed $92 million in the United States, and it ended up making $260.5 million worldwide. They say that it would have had to have cleared $400 million worldwide to have recouped its budget with all marketing costs and everything. So that's pretty much a bomb. They said the studio expected to lose as much as $80 million on this. So that's bad. Expected prior to release? No, they didn't expect to lose $80 million. Yeah, let's just throw $80 million. <laughs> let's lose $80 million. What do you say? <laughs> and it pretty much torpedoed any hope of uh, this continuing on in any way i'm very glad that it didn't completely uh ruin denis career and he went on to do dune because i think he's such a great science fiction director that could ruin his career yeah, that could we'll, hopefully we won't be talking about that on this podcast <laughs> i think i've made my case pretty clear of why i think this movie didn't really fully grab an audience. And I think that uh, it's echoed by Ridley Scott. He said it's slow, long, too long. I think it's too long. And I think it's just it's just slow. It's a slowly paced movie that has too much story to tell in the amount of running time that it's devoted to itself. And so I think people probably went to see it opening weekend and then kind of tuned out. I also said this in the last podcast, I just think Blade Runner is not a hot IP that people want to see resurrected. I was going to say, I think you summed it up better last time. You know, they miscalculated, you know, the appreciation for Blade Runner. Like you said, everybody loves Blade Runner now, but they don't. If you want to hear a perfect distillation of why this failed, listen to the last podcast. <laughs> well, to me, it's, it's like being, I don't know, goth or something in the 80s. You know, there's like a certain contingent of people who are so hardcore in love with this and they were very vocal. So it almost sounds like, oh, everybody loves Blade Runner. But really, it's a very slim amount of very vocal people who love Blade Runner. And I, I think the fact that it's so slow... It almost needs to bomb in order for it to be a proper Blade Runner movie, because if, if they did something blockbustery, it wouldn't be the same thing. So I appreciate that they stuck to their guns and made the movie that they wanted to make, which still focused on the cool themes and is still very much about loneliness and like, you know, not blockbustery feel good feelings and, and stuff like that. Well, I also wanted to bring up one other thing, and that is like at this time, it's when we're still sort of in this era. This is like right in the dead heat of Marvel's mm. domination of blockbusters. And this is so not Marvel. There's no jokes. It's depressing. It's slow. Meanwhile, everybody's like, fuck this. I want to go see Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's the science fiction people want to mm -hmm. see in 2017. Not this sort of dour, depressing kind of thing. I mean, I think that this sort of mirrors Troy's 1982 argument that he brings up every time. Stop it. I, I brought it up. A couple of times. <laughs> I just, I love giving you totally, shit. Totally, about E.T. and yes, yes. We should copyright it because the Troy 1982 argument. The theory. Yeah, theory. The okay. Troy 1982 theory. But I mean, I think in a weird way, the time that we're in, and especially around 2017, 
people are kind of back in that mode because like the world is shit and they don't want to see like a movie where the world is shit. You know, they want to see like fun Marvel <laughs> movies where they're going off into space and having fun, goofy adventures with Jeff Goldblum, you know, or whatever. They don't want this dour meditation on, you know, what it means to be human with like zero jokes and, you know, Ryan Gosling just kind of staring the whole time. I, I just think the zeitgeist is was in no way keyed towards this movie. Is there ever a time where it would have been released and done well, do you think? I mean... I think the 90s. I feel like that's the one moment yeah. in history where it could have happened. Like, Well, no, I think there's there's sort of a, a pendulum that happens. Yeah. And, and you can kind of see this, like there's things that happen politically in the world where people need lots of entertainment and that's you know you can kind of see when hollywood like turn, right. turns out musicals and all kinds of adventure movies and stuff and then they sort of get exhausted by that and that's you know you had the the american new wave in the 70s yeah where it, it's like people were done with being entertained they really wanted to have a conversation about the vietnam war and, and so you had that and then they get exhausted of that and then you get the 80s, you know, so the pendulum kind of swings back and forth. Yeah. But Sebastian, has there ever been a post-apocalyptic movie that's been a blockbuster? I feel like we've talked about this before and like nobody wants to see that, right? Ever. Mad Max. Yeah, Mad Max. I'm going to split hairs here because I think there's a difference between post-apocalyptic and dystopia. Yes, that's what I mean. This is yes, dystopia. dystopia. specifically. Like, I feel like people are more into post-apocalyptic movies. Because it's too removed. It's like, yeah. And also, the thing that's fun about post-apocalyptic movies is we've thrown off the shackles of right. society. exactly. So it's almost like you're back into, like, medieval times where it's all tribal craziness yeah. or whatever. And that's fun. Whereas <laughs> dystopias, they're still, like, an oppressive exactly. government or like they're still <laughs> cops and they yeah. suck. The things that are still kind of bumming you out about your current reality are still in dystopic sci-fi. Right, and that'll never make a blockbuster. We talked about Hunger Games last time. It's dystopia, which is why it's weird that it was successful because it's definitely kind of a bummer. But the world of the Hunger Games is not really mirroring our world. I think this movie mirrors our world too much. Oh, way too much, yeah. There's a young adult optimism in Hunger Games that is, you know, you don't get yeah. these hard-boiled detectives who are already depressed as well. Like, she's carrying the right. torch of hope, so, like, it's not really a dystopian movie. Whereas Blade Runner embraces it and is like, our characters feel this. And Yeah, every, everything about what Blade Runner is is talking about is, is pretty on the nose with what we're yeah. worried about heading towards. And there, and like Chris is saying, there's just a cynicism inherent in it, which I think something like Hunger Games doesn't have. And even weirdly enough, Mad Max Fury Road, which I know wasn't like the blockbuster super smash that we all feel it was in our hearts. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. But culturally, everybody loves that movie. It didn't make Marvel numbers, but everyone's like, Fury Road is one of the best movies of the last 10 years. Hell yeah. And Fury Road's got a lot of dark shit in it, but it's so crazy. It does not resemble the world we are in. It is a like madhouse. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, And Fury Road is really just simply a chase. It's just a fun chase. It's an adventure. Yeah, yeah it's escapism. I think it really comes down to that. Yeah. Is is it escapism? 
And this doesn't feel like escapism. This feels like, let's ponder where we're heading. Just for people like us, where we're like, yeah, I want to be on a roof with a girlfriend I can't touch in, in the rain. It'd be so cool. How are you guys feeling about Dune, having revisited Blade Runner 2049? Are you worried that, that the things that maybe sunk this movie are going to affect Dune? Or do you think that Denis is smart enough to maybe make some kind of corrections and things to make Dune more of a crowd pleaser? I'm worried about the action, honestly. I feel like if he can deliver the action in an entertaining way, I think we'll have a, a possible hit with Dune. I think his moods and his production design, he's he'll nail all that. But I feel like if he can make an entertaining action movie out of it, then we'll have something that, that will make money and that we'll see a sequel for. If it's this pace and this slow and then the action doesn't deliver then we're gonna have problems i agree there's probably a lot more scenes happening in the daylight true (laughs) this is true so there's that so you're gonna have a lot of action scenes that with the sun shining and as opposed to in uh, a little studio in the water i think that he uh, knows why this movie didn't connect with people and i think he is going to make dune much more of a crowd pleaser than we would assume, uh, judging from this movie. Just judging from the trailer, like there's jokes in the trailer. There's no jokes in this movie. No, you were adorable. You were adorable. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I loved this movie. I hear your criticisms of it, and I agree with you. The third act is, is clumsy, but as a sequel to Blade Runner... It's stellar. Like, I can't imagine a better interpretation of this universe and an expansion on the ideas and a better story. Like, I think it actually has an incredible story I agree. to tell. Yeah. And it may have not uh, actually executed the story as as well as it could have. But the story itself is great. I agree. Don't get me wrong. I love this movie. I mean, it's a worthy sequel I'll buy it in every version it comes out in from now until the end of time. (laughs) I also love this movie. I think it's a worthy sequel and I'm very happy it exists. And yeah, I mean, I don't think you could really fairly ask for a better sequel Mm -hmm. to Blade Runner. All right. Well, I'm going to go put my digital lover on a drive and fly out to a dirty (laughs) bombed Las Vegas and create some memories. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.